The Biden administration released a new COVID strategy, empowering Americans to live with COVID while still preparing for future variants. The U.S. will share taxpayer-funded COVID vaccine technology with the World Health Organization. And in his State of the Union, President Biden announced a new approach to tackling mental health. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul el I want you to bear with me here. Imagine you were a California state fire marshal, and you just finished battling the worst year of forest fires ever to hit your state. You're tired, morale is down, and you just need a rest. But there's no time for vacation. You've only got a few short months until the fire season starts again. So what do you do? Well, first, you'd want to make sure that you're prepared for next season. Repair all of your broken down equipment, fill all those unfilled firefighter vacancies. That way, at least, you're ready to take on what comes right ahead. But after that, you want to review what happened last year. What did we do well? What did we do poorly? What new insights can we gain by analyzing last year, reviewing all the newest approaches to firefighting? And there's something more. After all, the climate crisis is what's making every year's fire worse than the last year. You'd really want to do your part to explain to the public why fires are getting worse and what they can do to make them better. Okay, so this metaphor may be getting a bit obvious. We're not really talking about fires today, though forest fires may be a good topic for a future episode. We're cutting back into the pandemic. Because today, I want to sit down and reflect on where we're at. Because this moment finally feels a bit different. Cases are tumbling, and that's an amazing thing. Hospitalizations and deaths to COVID thankfully are following suit. Americans are moving into a phase of life that has us accommodating the pandemic. Masks are starting to come off in schools, grocery stores, and concert venues. But that doesn't mean that COVID itself is over. In fact, this is the time to prepare. Over two years of this pandemic, Americans have gotten used to public health doing what public health is actually least equipped to do, responding to a crisis in the moment. But public health is actually about preventing crises from ever happening in the first place. At its best, it operates in the background to keep us safe in ways we may not even know about. Right now, public health agencies around the country are like the fire marshal I just talked about. They're tired. They're worn out. Morale is down. Basic operations are haggard, if functioning at all. But this is actually the most important moment for public health to do what it does best. While everyday Americans are adjusting to life after the pandemic, we have to demand that public health continue to press forward to make sure that we're actually after the pandemic. This was President Biden last week in his State of the Union. We'll continue to combat the virus as we do other diseases. And because this virus mutates and spreads, we have to stay on guard. And here are four common sense steps as we move forward safely, in my view. The Biden administration has learned from past mistakes. When Omicron hit, we were caught flat-footed without the tests or high-quality masks we needed to face it down. And though high-quality antiviral pills existed, they weren't available when people needed them most. Rather than take our foot off the gas, public health needs to step on it. It means continuing to press vaccines. It means more research on the long-term consequences of COVID. And it means trying to understand where the pandemic is going and heading it off at the curb. When everyone else stops paying attention is when public health needs to redouble our attention. Toward that end, I've been thinking a lot about where the virus is going, how it'll evolve, and how that could affect us. One of the more interesting pieces I've read recently laid out four potential directions that the virus could evolve. It was written by Dr. Don Burke, Dean Emeritus of the University of Pittsburgh School of Public Health, who spent his career thinking about infectious disease epidemics. He joins me to lay out and explain those four alternatives for what SARS-CoV-2 could do next, after this break.
All right. Do you guys hear me now? Yes. Hear you well. Yep. All right. Perfect. All right. Let's get started. Uh, can you introduce yourself for the tape? Hi. Um, I'm uh, Donald Burke. I'm uh, a physician, um, and I was the dean of the Graduate School of Public Health at the University of Pittsburgh. I'm now a, um, a emeritus dean. Professor Don Burke is the Dean Emeritus at the University of Pittsburgh's Graduate School of Public Health. Prior to his time in the academy, Dr. Burke served 23 years on active duty in the U.S. Army, leading military infectious disease research at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research in Washington, D.C., and at the Armed Forces Research Institute of Medical Sciences in Bangkok, Thailand. He's been thinking about global pandemics his entire career. He's here to share his thoughts about where COVID goes from here. Uh, Dr. Burke, thank you so much for for joining the the show. And you know your work caught my attention uh, when you wrote a really fantastic op-ed for Stat News, in which you laid out uh, a series of scenarios for the future of the pandemic. I wanted to step back before we talk about those scenarios, and it, it's clear to me that um, the way that these novel viruses emerge is really quite critical to understanding where they might go. So, can you walk us through how we get a, a novel virus like SARS-CoV-2? Um, that, that viruses are in nature in essentially every animal species has almost all the same general types of viruses that we do, and they're mutating and evolving over time in those animals. Um, and occasionally, one of these viruses will jump species. Um, it will jump from the animal into humans and occasionally from humans into animals. Uh, and in the process, uh, it may spread rapidly, or it may do nothing. Uh, but when it spreads rapidly, it becomes an emerging disease and a pandemic. Uh, but there's a huge reservoir of viruses out in nature that are all evolving, um, any one of which could jump at any time. Mm. And there's something particular, too, about the ways that um, these viruses can sort of jump between species, having to do with uh, recombination, right? The a fancy term for saying that basically you get different pieces of uh, viral genetic material um, admixing inside cells. What is that and, and what role does that play in helping us to think about where this might go? Yeah, so all of the viruses that are particularly good at jumping species and that have caused epidemics in humans recently, like influenza and HIV and the coronaviruses, all of these viruses not only uh, change by mutation, but they change by swapping genetic information. Um, and the way that that happens, if a, a, a single human becomes infected with two different viruses and they infect the person's cells, then inside the cells, the viruses essentially cross over and exchange genetic information. You end up with a virus that on the left half of the genetic um, code is from one of the virus strains, and on the right-hand side of the, uh, the the gene sequence, it's from the other virus, a hybrid or a chimera. Mm. Um, and sometimes those chimeras are more um, transmissible or more lethal than either of the parents, and in which case, that's the one that will take off. So it isn't, we talk about the mutations uh, often, but we have this other method that the viruses use, too, that's recombination. Sometimes it's the viruses like influenza, the, the genomes are already pre-chunked. They're in a series of segments, almost like little chromosomes. Um, mm. And that when a, a cell becomes infected with two different viruses, you can come up with any of those combinations of the chunks uh, of genetic information. It's a good way of swapping information. The viruses are essentially built 
to be able to do that, to not only Mm -hmm. mutate, but to swap genes uh, on an efficient uh, basis. So having laid out that context, you wrote this, this piece laying out these four different approaches. What prompted you to write this? And then, of course, what are the four different um, potential outcomes here that we're, uh, we're thinking through? I've been uh, working in emerging infectious diseases, global infectious disease, my entire career. Um, and uh, so I have worked in the, um, the rice fields in Southeast Asia on encephalitis viruses and the jungles of Cameroon on HIV-related strains. And so I've been studying how viruses evolve and emerge. Um, and, and some time ago, I was worried about coronaviruses, and I wrote that, that that could be a concern. Um, and as I've watched the coronavirus evolve, um, it's really moving pretty quickly uh, that we're getting these new variants uh, popping up, the Alpha and the Delta um, and the Omicron. But what particularly got me concerned was sort of the confluence of two things. One was the the sort of consensus belief that we were sliding toward a, um, um, the new normal uh, of mm. mutants that we could deal with. Uh, but it was also the realization that Omicron really was a pretty big jump. It was, you know, there were 60 new mutations all in one virus all of a sudden. It wasn't just a derivative of Delta. So it just reminded me that these viruses can take some pretty big ju- jumps uh, when given the opportunity. So you put the two come together that you know, where um, people believe that you know, we're on a sort of the path that's going to be a smooth path plus the sign that Omicron take a big jump, plus the fact that coronaviruses are notorious for their jumping and evolution, just said, we need to be ready for something other than a a slide toward the new normal. Mm. So, you know, to, 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 to put it succinctly, these viruses jump rather quickly. We got lucky that it jumped in this particular direction, but here are some other directions it could jump that may uh, require us to fundamentally rethink this notion that that the pandemic is is somehow over. Yeah. So when you say we got lucky, I have to say this: we're not lucky with this epidemic. The uh, yeah, fair. But I uh, but I did write after the SARS one epidemic um, in two thousand three two thousand and four. We were lucky then. There were only 8,000 cases at that point. And if the virus at that point had been a little more transmissible or, uh, or had been a little less clinically obvious for every case, it would have been much harder. And I wrote that at the time. And, and in fact, this one, SARS, if you want to call it SARS-2, is, is worse. Yeah. Um, and um, so, um, But it has sort of settled into a pattern now. Um, and I just don't want us to be complacent. I think we need to be uh, both and make prepar- think about and make preparations for things that could go could go south. Yeah, and and I really appreciate that correction. Obviously, a a, a virus that has killed uh, millions of people around the world. There's nothing lucky about that. What I what I meant was the um, the emergence of Omicron as a as a less severe variant. That is yeah. um, something that happens. By chance, that's not that's not a a directed outcome of of an evolutionary process. I want to um I want to ask you can can you lay out these these four different uh, scenarios for us? Yeah. So the, the first one is, um, and I do think the most likely thing is that we will not have a major new catastrophe. Just, let me say that for the beginning, but I'm not sure of that um, given the history of these viruses. So 
The first and the most likely is that we will see uh, other viruses that come along that are variations of mutants, and and they will be um, uh, not more virulent, and we will be able to live with them. Not unlike um, the we already have four coronaviruses that circulate through the human population. They have technical names, but you know, they're for the most part pretty mild and uh, cause common colds. Um, and we all get there. Everybody in the planet gets infected with four different coronaviruses, and we never even noticed it. It was, mm. you know, sometimes you'd get a cold and not be able to go to school or go to work, but that, but it rarely ended in a severe disease. And so the first possibility is that SARS-CoV-2 will do the same thing, that it'll evolve and become a little less virulent, get to the point where that'll be the fifth common cold coronavirus. I think that's the most likely thing that's going to happen. Um, that's that's good news, and um, that's certainly what we hope will happen. But you yep. know, the other three are a little bit different. Yep. Yeah. So the the next one um, is that the virus uh, doesn't make any major um, evolutionary jumps, but it it uh, changes the cells in which it infects. That is, mm-hmm. that it uh, instead of uh, infecting the cells of the lining of the lung. Um, it changes to d- attack the heart more or the brain more or the kidney more. Um, and the reason that I worry about this one is that happens in in coronaviruses in animals. One of the r- reasons that we can make some informed guesses about what could happen is that these things have already happened in animal species. Um, so, for instance, uh, in a coronavirus of pigs, it, it um, went for years as only cause only, but a severe diarrhea and an intestinal problem. And then it mutated and became transmissible and became a lung disease. Mm. The same virus with a few extra mutations changed from uh, affecting one organ system to another. So that's what the kind of thing that you have to be ready for is that um, just because today's um, SARS-CoV-2 looks like this, Tomorrow's might change. Again, I don't want to overemphasize that this is going to happen, it's, but these are the things we have to be thinking about um, and be ready if they do. And, and there's evidence that Omicron made a, made a jump from uh, attacking the lung tissue to attacking uh, tissue in the throat, which you know, is some yeah. evidence for this happening. Yeah, so that's the, that one's a, a milder variation off of the theme of what I'm talking about is that it it is still in the respiratory tract, but in a different part of the respiratory tract. And what I'm referring to is more of a change of the of the organ that's involved, mm-hmm. not only the subcomponents. But but you, you know, your point's a good one: is that the virus has already shown its ability, you know, to move around the body a little bit. And then there's the the other two scenarios are are a little bit more um, are a little bit scarier. And one of them involves the recombination that we talked about. Can you can you walk us through that scenario? Yeah. So again, because there are all of these coronaviruses in nature, and uh, and if and the only reason that we don't know um, all of the coronaviruses, just we haven't tested all the animal species for uh, coronaviruses, but it looks like essentially every mammalian and most vertebrates um, have coronaviruses of, of, that are adapted to those species, um, and we already know that sometimes these can jump. There have been dog coronavirus, mini epidemics uh, in Southeast Asia and in humans. Uh, and, and so if you have a person who's co-infected with a 
one virus that is um, a normal common cold coronavirus or, or SARS-CoV-2 or any other coronaviruses, and you get a jump uh, with the animal, uh, you could end up with one of these recombinants that could have n- new properties. Um, and mm. just um, and it also may um, be able to evade the normal immune uh, response to uh, the, the pre-existing immune response to SARS-CoV-2. And what what makes that um, a, a potentially possible scenario is that we are starting to see a lot of our SARS-CoV-2 in other animal species, whether you're talking about, you know, evidence that it's infected cats or dogs, substantial evidence that's infected deer, uh, evidence that's infecting mink in, in mink farms. You know, a, as you think it through, what would be the scenario, what what kind of animal scenario would you be most worried about uh, this, this, this potential recombination occurring in and then spilling back uh, into humans? Yeah, I, I don't, um, you know, no crystal ball here, but, you know, the, there are some general principles and the general principles are, you know, the, the animals that are the most populous um, and the viruses that have the most common contact are the this animal species that have the most common contact with humans. And so, some of the virus, the the animal uh, species with the most are the domesticated um, agricultural product. You know, the pigs uh, would be a, a prime concern. Uh, chickens would be another. You know that uh, um, even mice have a um, the coronaviruses, and in many parts of the world, rodents have intimate contact with humans in their in their homes, and um, and so those are. Those would be the ones I'd be most suspicious. I don't think it'll be a whale coronavirus, and I don't <laughs> think. But you know, but I you know I say that you know only facetiously. But the point is, coronaviruses are just about everywhere. We'll be back with more with Dr. Don Burke after this break. And we're back with more of my conversation with Dr. Don Burke. And, you know, it, it's it's important because we see this principle playing out regularly when it comes to another virus, uh, which is the flu, right? We're always constantly on guard for either an avian flu or a swine flu. And that's exactly this process that you're talking about, where you end up getting co-infection between a, a human uh, influenza that, under, you know, not to personify it, but knows how to uh, bind to our cells and infect us with uh, one that um, is endemic in either chickens or in in pigs, where then you end up having this recombination and you get a different capacity for virulence um, coupled with the ability to infect human cells, and then you know that that potentially uh, causes an outbreak or or worse a uh, an epidemic. And and so I, I want folks to to sort of understand that this kind of thing happens with other viruses all the time. It's not, or not all the time, but it happens with other viruses in ways that we've um, had to pay attention to in the past. And it's plausible that it could happen with, with COVID-19 as well. And then you, you lay out the, the, truly, the truly scary scenario um, involving the ability of SARS-CoV-2 to, to, to actually leverage our own immune response. Can you walk us through how that works and, and what that would entail? Um. When I um, lived in Bangkok for six years, I studied a disease called dengue, uh, which is common in the tropics. Um, and dengue um, has been found that um, that if there are four types of dengue, and if you're infected with one type, 
you're immune to that type, but that sets you up for more severe disease should you get infected with a, a different type later. Hmm. And so we studied that and showed that was the case. And and then that turned out to be important in vaccine development for dengue, is that you know, vaccines prime you, uh, particularly people who had never seen a dengue before, for being more likely to be infected than not uh, from a vaccine. It's the only virus that does that that we know of right now, the dengue viruses. Uh, so, but, uh, you know, but it's a concern. So um, there is a virus of uh, of cats uh, called the uh, feline infectious peritonitis virus that if you give kittens a um, immune serum before you inoculate them, they get more severe disease than if they never had the, um, a, if they, if you gave them normal serum or no serum. Um, hmm. uh, and uh, so that means that the coronaviruses already have sort of, uh, um, not fully, but a similar sort of disease process. So, uh, so that's what makes me worried that maybe this could happen and we should keep our eyes out for that as a possibility. So this feline virus is a coronavirus? Yes, yeah, yeah. So cats have a version of the coronavirus that targets um, cats with an immune response. And that then suggests to us that it's plausible that SARS-CoV-2 could uh, either mutate to take this on or potentially recombine to take on this capacity? Yeah, yeah, I don't know how it would evolve uh, to to do that. In feline infectious peritonitis, it requires the virus not only to have encounter somebody who or encounter a cat with immunity, but then it has to mutate a little bit more to be able to take on this property of uh, of not only um, evading the immune response but exploiting the immune response. And I um, and and so I do think we need to at least. Think about that, um, and think about you know if if we saw that, how could we uh, respond quickly? How could we stop it? What would be the right surveillance mechanisms? So if it were trending in that direction, how would we know it? Yeah, there are. Um, what would be? Are there some um, studies in the laboratory or in animals that we could you know, make sure you know to to know what the characteristics might look like? I you know this is. Like this is in the realm of speculation, and I don't want to say this is going to happen, but I, but I do think that we need to think about all of the bad things that can happen as well as the easy one. Um, you know, this, the slide toward endemicity could happen, but these other things are possibilities that we need to be prepared for. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the the scenario that fourth scenario is a truly. Uh blood-curdling scenario, because now you're talking about SARS being able to deliberately attack folks with with immune responses, which means everybody who's been vaccinated and everybody who's been infected, which is what's currently, you know, creating such a barrier to the evolution of um, yet another uh, potential variant. And I want to underline the fact that this is um, not a highly likely scenario, but that it's a plausible scenario. And in, um, you know, earlier in the episode, we talked about the critical role of public health um, to stay vigilant, specifically when everyone else has moved on. And, you know, it's sort of hard because for a lot of people in uh, out there in the world, their understanding of public health and what public health does has actually evolved in a moment when public health is actually on its back foot, right? Because traditionally what public health is doing is operating in the background uh, to prevent something terrible from happening rather than responding as something terrible is happening. And, um, and, and, and so for a lot of folks, they're used to public health uh, sort of working 
as uh, terrible things are are happening rather than working in the background and sort of what what your uh, engagement with these potential scenarios lays out is just how critical this next phase of public health is going to be to prevent uh, any of the latter three scenarios from 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 occurring. Um, and as you think about where uh, we are now and where we're headed, what would your advice be to both um, federal public health agencies, whether it's the CDC uh, or or others, or uh, state and local public health agencies um, around how to stay vigilant, how to focus on uh, what needs to be done to to hold COVID at bay and really get us to the point where we can, you know, a year from now have declared victory on this? Yeah. So the first thing I do is I just make sure that they. Um, the appropriate agencies had um, thought through the issues um, and said, here are some scenarios. I laid out three. There are probably a few more. Um, And the question, what could we do to minimize the damage if these occur? And and it's not just in the realm of uh, of treatment. It's the realm of um, how do we do the right surveillance to see these is quicker rather than later? How do we um, how do we, do we have um, public communication about these? Um, how do we ensure that we've got the right um, international collaborations in place? Um, uh, there's lots of different d- dimensions of this uh, problem. So that's the first thing I do is make, just make sure we've thought it through ahead of time. We're, we can't think of everything that could occur, but I'd like to make sure these kind of things are are, are taken care of. The second thing is, the realization that this is this could happen anywhere on the planet. Uh, that um, mm. even though we have our own epidemic, you know, the we we are a, still a minority of the total infections that are occurring at any given moment around uh, around the world. Um, and so, the more we can do um, to help other countries, that's in our interest. Um, it is not charity. It is if this were a question of terrorism or warfare or anything else, we wouldn't hesitate mm-hmm. to protect Americans by working internationally uh, with re- whatever resources it takes. So I, I want to uh, just stress the fact that this is a global epidemic with global consequences for all of us. Uh, and so that's the other thing is that I would, I would do. I would redouble our international control efforts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we, we've we just heard from the Biden administration following up on the State of the Union uh, on a new COVID plan. And, you know, in, in some respects, it engages with what needs to be done right now to allow us to, quote unquote, live with uh, the virus um, and, 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 and move toward an endemicity scenario. But it also lays out some of the things that need to be done to protect folks in the interim and also to engage with the potential uh, that there's new variant. And one of the things that came up earlier was uh, genomic surveillance. Um, where are we when it comes to genomic surveillance right now with respect to the scenarios that you laid out and other scenarios? And where do we need to be uh, to be as vigilant as we need to be in order to jump on um, you know, a newly emergent variant that might have some of these characteristics uh, so that we can squash it in ways that we just weren't able to with any of the previous variants before it? Yeah, so part of that problem is that the these vir- the scenarios that I talk about will probably manifest them first as themselves first as the um, in their phenotype in how they behave less in their and because we probably won't see them right away even if we had an enormous global uh, genomic surveillance so um, 
Uh, I don't know that they'll be picked up that way. They'll probably be picked up by um, a, a more epidemiological type of um, surveillance. Um, the um, having said that, uh, that having a strong genomics that allows those to track them when, as these variants do appear, now uh, it will be any important in any coordinated um, international response. So. Uh, it's it's I have to say of, of the things that have happened during this epidemic is that the amount of genomic sequencing and understanding the emergence of uh, variants has just been spectacular where you know, no epidemic in history have we been able to track we we would never even 15 years ago we wouldn't have been able to to know that we did have variants that were you know, um, Alpha uh, and uh, Delta and uh, mm-hmm. and Omicron, and that they had been and that they had been just changing with lightning speed. You know, one replacing the other because of increased transmissibility. We may have seen, you know, if it were 15 years ago, we would have seen spikes in cases, and we wouldn't have known why, we, or we would have figured it out, but not nearly as quickly. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, so it's already uh, the the genomics have been a strong point in in the overall national and international response, but we can help strengthen other countries um, and do a better uh, job of global surveillance. Mm-hmm. So we, we've laid out a couple scenarios. We talked a bit about what um, how public health agencies and, and the public health uh, uh, workforce should be thinking about them. But you know, most of the folks who listen to this podcast um, are not epidemiologists. They're not working at a, at a health agency. How should the public be thinking about the future? And you know, maybe a more pertinent question is: How are you and your family thinking about things right now uh, with respect to changing mask guidance, uh, et cetera? Yeah, I don't think that the possibility of these scenarios changes our day-to-day life. Uh, that we we do have to change our routines and adapt to the virus as it's adapting to us. Um, and uh, and as I said, the likely scenarios are that none of these are going to happen. Um, the uh, mm-hmm. And if that's the case, then what what I and my family do is that we um, we follow the CDC guidance. We get our vaccines uh, when we go out into areas that are um, with lots of other people in indoor settings. We still wear our masks, uh, uh, and uh, not until the cases drop a bit more will we be comfortable um, in, uh, going maskless. But uh, so it really hasn't materially changed our. These, you know, my knowing about these risks have, has not materially changed how we approach the disease. My my job is as an epidemiologist and a virologist to to think about things and what we need to be prepared for. Um, and uh, but that doesn't mean it changes our day to day lives. Well, I appreciate that, and I know that uh, that uh, tens of thousands of people out there listening also appreciate that. I think. You know, it's it's important to know what the potential risks are and live according to the risks as they bear out for you and your family. And I think one of the hard parts about about COVID is that it has has um, occupied so much of our mind space and played on so many of our anxieties that I think people hearing about the potential risks sort of th- see them as inevitable. And that's just not the case. Is that you know, a- in a lot of ways, um, our job is to stay vigilant, stay aware, do the things that we can do, try and live our lives. Uh, independent um, of what is potential risk, and, and more according to what the risks look like right now. And right now, there's there's good news on the horizon. Cases yeah. continue to drop. Obviously, hospitalizations and deaths are you know two or four weeks behind, 
and um, and like you said, the highest potential outcome here is that we do continue to move toward endemicity and we can look back at this and say, wow, that really was awful, but we should be ready. And certainly the professionals who uh, are out there staying vigilant need to be ready for these uh, potential outcomes. I, I really appreciate you joining us to share um, some of your thinking and some of your insights uh, from your past work and expertise. Uh, that was Dr. Don Burke. He uh, is the Dean Emeritus at the University of Pittsburgh Graduate School of Public Health, uh, a virologist and epidemiologist. Dr. Burke, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. After his State of the Union, President Biden's administration released a new approach to COVID for this moment. It's founded on four critical goals. The first is on fighting COVID where we find it. That means continuing to flood the space with testing and to offer antiviral pills for those who test positive. The Test a Tree program would allow folks to get tested at pharmacies and immediately get access to a course of antiviral pills for free. It also steps on the gas for vaccine manufacturing and coordinating vaccines for young children as soon as they're available. The second is to step up the genomic surveillance abilities so that we can sequence viral samples from COVID tests to identify new variants earlier and better understand how they could behave. The third is to protect critical institutions, especially schools. That means investing in air filtration and ventilation, better articulating guidelines for isolation and quarantine, and supplying tests. The fourth, and to me the most important, is vaccinating the world. The administration has committed to donating 1.2 billion vaccine doses and supplying other critical medical supplies. But more importantly is empowering lower and middle-income countries to manufacture their own vaccines. One of the most important things that the administration is doing is to share government-funded research with the WHO's COVID-19 technology pool. That way, countries can leverage the tech both to build up on it, but also to manufacture critical vaccines and supplies at home, vastly increasing their supply. Finally, one of the worst consequences of the pandemic has been its impact on mental health. This was President Biden at the State of the Union. And let's get all Americans the mental health services they need. More people can turn for help and full parity between physical and mental health care if we treat it that way in our insurance. So what does that mean? Biden aims to expand the behavioral health workforce to address the fact that there just aren't enough mental health providers. That also includes training people with mental illness to be peer specialists, a critical step toward empowering these communities. It also includes launching a 988 crisis response line that people in crisis can call and receive mental health first aid. Right now, mental health just isn't reimbursed the same way as physical health, which means that it's not provided the same way. Biden put his full force behind addressing this, including a proposed requirement for health insurance companies to fund at least three behavioral health visits a year without any out-of-pocket costs. In addition, President Biden wants to put mental health everywhere, expanding online options, options at school and universities, options at primary care facilities, and so on. He's also focused on vulnerable communities, expanding access to black and brown communities, but also making sure high-risk groups like veterans and healthcare workers have access to quality services. And to top it off, the administration's really thinking about preventing mental illness as well, with a particular focus on research to understand the role of social media, particularly for young users. That's all for today. On your way out, can you do me a favor and just rate and review the show? It really does help. Also, if you love the show and really want to rep us, drop by the Crooked Media Store for some America Dissected drip. We've got our logo mugs and t-shirts, our Science Always Wins t-shirts, sweatshirts, and dad caps, and our safe and effective tees, which are on sale for $10 off while supplies last. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Our associate producer is Olivia Martinez. Veronica Simonetti mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra, Lyra Smith, and Ari Schwartz. 
Our theme song is by Take Asuzawa and Alex Ruggiera. Our executive producers are Sarah Geismer, Sandy Gerard, Michael Martinez, and me, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed, your host. Thank you for listening.